station. But now uh, for the task at hand, we're returning into our second week of our new summer series entitled Engage. We're looking at the, the what and the why and the hows when it comes to evangelism, um, sharing our faith. And last week we looked at the what and the why, um, and today we're going to begin to kind of press into the how, but let's look at the, the what first. And we're going to be a definition on the screen that we shared last week of what evangelism is. And this is a, a definition that I've held since going all the way back to my personal evangelism class in seminary. Um, evangelism is the compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people in the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing them to Christ as Savior and Lord, that they in turn might share him with others. Now, we're going to leave that up on the screen just for a little bit if you want to jot it down if you haven't had a chance to already. But that's the what. That's what evangelism is in a, in a nutshell. And then the why is a mixture of, well, because God has told us to, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're to go, the evangelion, to take the good news of the gospel forth. We're to do these things. But it's also something every Christian should desire to do as we think about what Christ has done on the cross for us. To think that we get to have a part in the wonder of it all, to be able to share how others can also be reconciled to God through Christ. We get to be a part of this. And, and what I have found, and not only in conversations here, but in, in a broader sense, is that many Christians desire to share their faith. It's not so much that we're having to fight against, and even in the conversations we've had in the, in the recent months, we're like, okay, pastor, I want to just share my faith. I desire to share my faith, but I don't really know how to share my faith. Or I have these X, Y, and Z fears when it comes to sharing my faith. So maybe some of those fears may be um, you're, you're scared of how somebody's going to respond. You know, maybe they're going to come back with a voice of rejection. And I mean, maybe they're going to ask a question that you're not going to have an answer to. I think that's a big one that people have. But maybe it just comes down to I I don't know how to share the gospel. And so my prayer is that, that this series will, will help increase our confidence in evangelism, which in turn will prayerfully lead to more evangelism taking place, more sharing of the gospel. So to, to get started, I think it's important to look at the roles of evangelism. Like, what are we really responsible for in, in this? Like, what is our job description, if you will, as Christians when it comes to, to sharing our faith and evangelism? What is our role? What is God's role? And how does all this kind of work in place? And so to get there, um, I want us to get there. I want to take us back to Paul's second missionary journey. And to do that, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick up there in just a moment. But for some, I'm going to define what a missionary journey was. A missionary journey, back when Paul was talking about this, was where he and those who were with him would, would travel from city to city in these basically unreached, unengaged locations, people who had never heard the gospel, and, and they're taking the good news of Jesus Christ into these areas, and they're sharing, they're making disciples. They're, they're, they're starting new churches from people who are coming to faith in Christ and equipping leaders and moving forward. So his first missionary journey um, had been in the east. It had been the western part of, of Asia. So just kind of east uh, and northeast of Jerusalem and all of uh, the, what we now know as, as Israel. 
But while on his second missionary journey, which also was starting in this region, um, he had a vision from the Lord to go to Macedonia. So being here in Europe, so moving westward, where, again, no access to the gospel at this time, so moving west. And what did Paul do after receiving this vision? He went to Macedonia, and he began to proclaim the gospel, just like he'd done everywhere else he had been. And as he did, he came to several key cities along the way, the first being that of Philippi. Now, what you'll find about the story of Philippi is in Acts chapter 16. And while in Philippi, he, he, we're told that Paul faced a great deal of suffering, a great deal of persecution. Can you imagine for what? For, for preaching the gospel. He was facing suffering, facing persecution for preaching the gospel. In fact, he was thrown in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. Now, some would see that as a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel, in fact, that's what it was intended to be, is a hindrance to the advancement of gospel. But Paul's a dude where he's like, okay, I know my role. I know my responsibility is to share the gospel. Um, everything else is up to God. So wherever you have me, I'm going to share the gospel. So now he's in prison and what's he doing? He's sharing the gospel. And then what does God bring about? He brings about an earthquake. Now, normal prisoners are, are going to just take off and run and flee. Paul doesn't do that. Uh, ultimately, through this whole situation, you have the Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. Long story short, you have the church in Philippi that is started um, and begins to, to move forth from there. And we're going to look at that story later on in our series. But you have, from all these seemingly impossible circumstances, God establishing and building his church there in Philippi. And then what happens next? Well, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17. In fact, follow along with me, if you will. We're going to look at verse 1 first, pause, and then look at some more. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, why pause there? Because we want to set up the context here. We want to set up and see why, why Thessalonica really served to be a very important city for, for several different reasons. I'll give you four. They're not going to be on the screen. But one, it was one of the largest cities in the Roman world. And by that, we mean it had a population of a little over 100,000 people. Two, as a large city, it had a synagogue. And that's significant because Luke mentions it immediately in verse 1. And why would Luke mention it immediately in verse 1? Because when Paul was on his missionary journeys, one of his evangelistic strategies was to go to the synagogue first, to go there and to engage them proclaiming uh, the gospel, teaching from the scriptures. So that was his starting point, from, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, then to the Gentile. Three, Thessalonica was, all, was also a strategic city because of its central location. So you had main roads that were passing through that. In fact, that's the road, one of the Roman roads that had been built was the one that led Paul from Philippi into Thessalonica and, and on. It's easy access, transportation and economy and stuff were beginning because of these roads. It had harbors, it had all of this type of stuff to kind of make it access to the rest of the world. So think of the greater DC area and all of our airports and our harbors and our train stations and all that we have that opens us up not only to the rest of the country, but to the rest of the world. And so you can kind of see the influence there. But because, number four, because it was a key location, it had a significant religious atmosphere there. So you had numerous temples and, and shrines and stuff throughout the city. In fact, it was about 
50 miles from Mount Olympus. So you're thinking Greek mythology and the little G gods of the day of Zeus and Apollo and all, you know, all of the different ones. You know, that's where that would have, have come from. So all that to say, highly, highly, highly religious city. But the most important religious ceremony of the day, and this is important to see for the context, is the most important religious ceremony of the city actually centered around the worship of the Roman emperor. See, the Roman imperial cult placed the Caesars as, as some member, and some members of his family as a, a sense of, of deity. And the Roman citizens were called upon to worship Caesar as God. And if they were to do that and to pay their taxes and to be good citizens, not disrupt the status quo, then everything's going to be fine. It's all going to be good. So consider that, all the context, as we be reading in verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scripture. So about a three-week period of time, explaining and proving that it was necessary for, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul and Silas, they've come into Thessalonica and what do they begin doing? Reasoning from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. They're proclaiming the gospel. And what happens as they're proclaiming the gospel? Some are persuaded and they believe. They're believing the gospel. And you've got people, men and women, from all different walks of life within this cultural setting, believing the gospel. And that's reason to celebrate, right? When people are coming to faith in Christ from all walks of life, you want to celebrate. But it also creates a problem. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men on the rabble, they, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that, that's Paul and Silas who they're looking for, they, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now remember that line, he, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, why the jealousy here? Why the uproar? Why the attacking? Why all of this? Well, consider the charges being levied against them in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And for the jealous Jews, there is the problem. Why? Because this message is causing a disruption throughout the Roman Empire. And the thought is, okay, if, if we let them come in here, if we let them continue, it's already been three weeks and we're seeing what's happening. If we let this continue, then it's going to continue to disrupt things here as well. It's going to mess up our way of life. 
But then he had to ask, well, why really such fear here? Because especially in a city with so much religious diversity, why such fear? It seemed like it would just be added into the equation, just like it is in our kind of culture of, well, just one religion among the others. Well, why, why the fear? Well, that's where verse 7 comes into play. They were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the problem here, the problem then is that this message is going against the cultural norm of the city. See, the church could be tolerated as long as it didn't disrupt the the social order, much like we see within our culture today. It's fine if you want to be a Christian. It's fine if you want to gather together and worship as a church. It's fine, but keep it to yourself. Don't make it public. Keep it private. See, religion in Thessalonica is tolerated as long as it doesn't disrupt the social order. Sounds very familiar to what we see today. But biblical Christianity naturally plays against the social order. Why? Because Christianity is not a neutral religion. It affects everything. It affects absolutely everything, the way we think, the way we act, everything. So imagine when when these new Christians began saying that Jesus is to be worshiped above all and not Caesar. What do they do? It's a a message of of social order, right? It's disordering, it's messing up that, that social order. People start getting nervous. They start getting worried when they hear this. Like, it's going to mess up our way of life. And what happens? This mom is formed to come look for Paul and Silas. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, then they take those who were hiding them and keeping them and receiving them, and they charge them with treason against Rome, treason against Caesar. And then uh, ultimately, we see Paul and Silas are ushered out under the darkness of, of night, um, and they make their way to a new city. Um, and what do they do when they make their way to that city? They continue to preach the gospel. So what we see in Thessalonica are, are young Christians facing some serious persecution. They're not trying to, to, be, to be bad citizens. They're not trying to overthrow the government. They're just refusing to bow a knee to anyone but King Jesus, which is exactly what leads to their suffering and their persecution. Reminded to us that, that a public faith, a faith that is lived out in the public arena in every capacity, will inevitably lead to suffering and persecution, which is why Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. So what we want to do in reading this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is to see how he's encouraging them in in their suffering. So follow along with me, picking up in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father that your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only had the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come." So Paul's writing here to the church in Thessalonica with a hope of encouraging them in in the faith. He's telling them all throughout this this first chapter, he's thankful to God for them, constantly mentioning them in his prayers, remembering their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfast hope in Christ. Talks about how they imitated him and Silas and their suffering for the sake of the gospel and did so with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and not only there, but other places and regions throughout to, to such a degree where Paul himself didn't even have to go to those places. They, the gospel was beginning to advance. And remember, all of this is happening in the midst of great persecution. So I read this, and I'm gonna read this in the understanding of the context of the suffering that they're under. And I look at the church in Thessalonica, And I'm thinking about us uh, as a church. And I'm thinking about me uh, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a father. And and I'm like, where does this confidence come from? Where does this this boldness come from to, to continue to share the faith in the midst of such persecution? Remember, like Paul had only been there three weeks. They're not sitting here with advanced degrees. They're not sitting here with, with like training and classes and all of those types. They're not, they don't have that. Three weeks. And I believe that the answer lies in that they understood their role in evangelism. They understood what they were responsible for. They understood that God is the one who saved them and they understood what their role was to proclaim this good news of the gospel. Meaning their confidence stemmed from good theology. It it stemmed from, even in that three weeks, they understood, okay, this is my role and this is God's role. And they were clearly saying, okay, I'm gonna stick with my role. Just like Paul did when he was in in prison. So let's take a look at these roles, starting with uh, number one, God's role in evangelism. We're gonna break this down into three parts because that's how Paul breaks it down in this. And he's not doing so in a systematic theology sense where he's not going through and saying, okay, Here's God the Father's role, and here's God the Son's role, and here's God the Holy Spirit's role. Uh, But he does that in the text. He just naturally lays it forth in the text, and that's what I love about Paul. So let's start with God the Father, where in verse 4, Paul tells us, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And this is language that we see Paul using all throughout his letters. It's not uncommon. It's all throughout his letters. Take Ephesians 1, 4, for example. Even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Which is really awesome to think about what he's trying to communicate here. Paul telling the the church in Ephesus and telling the church in the the Thessalonians that before the world was even formed, God knew you and he loved you. Meaning God the Father's role in salvation is to choose people for salvation. 
an incredibly humbling, encouraging, and confidence-building doctrine. Throughout the Bible, we're going to see the words like God chose, the elect, called, uh, predestined. All words referring to the role of God the Father in salvation. Now, what we're not here to do today, we're not here to, to break down the intricacies of this doctrine. And I'm going to admit that it can be confusing and it can bring with it a great deal of questions. You know why I know that? Because I've had them myself and continue to have them myself to to wrestle through this. I'm not approaching this as somebody who has it all figured out. Just say, okay, this is what the Bible says and this is what the Bible says. And we can't say that they're in conflict with one another. And anybody, anybody desiring to, to truly understand the meaning of these biblical words and this biblical doctrine we're gonna have to wrestle through a lot of emotionally difficult questions. And if you're wrestling with those emotionally difficult questions, good. That means you're processing, you're thinking, you're you're trying to absorb this. And even in that, we're we're gonna come to a spot where we realize we're never gonna have all the answers. We're never going to have all the answers. That's why I'm so thankful for like Deuteronomy 29, 29. tells us the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, that's not a cop-out to say that we're not to, to, to seek and to know what God has revealed. We are. But it's also not to sit here and to say that we can have it all figured out. He is an infinite God, and we are finite in our being. But if you'd like to, to get together, you'd like to discuss this, I, I am more than happy to do so. And if you want to get together to, to debate this, I, I'd rather not. Um, but if you want to get together to discuss this, I am more than happy to do so and humbly learn from one another. But what is clear from Genesis to Revelation, absolutely abundantly clear, is that God is 100% sovereign over salvation, which is why that we can have absolute confidence that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to faith in Christ, will be saved. Not because of anything they have done, but because of what God has done. Because God has ensured it will happen. And that assurance is realized in the role of God the Son. God the Son, here we see where that Jesus' role is to save people from God's wrath. Verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So two things here. One, there is a wrath that we all deserve. There's a judgment that we all deserve. There is no one who deserves this wrath less or more than anyone else. This isn't Star Wars. My son is hooked on Star Wars, right? Like, this, is, this isn't Star Wars here where, like, remember Return of the Jedi? Haven't you seen a Return of the Jedi? Some of you have the room. Well, in that spot, Luke is having a conversation with his father, like Darth Vader. And they're having this conversation, it's not even a conversation, but he tells Darth Vader, he goes, I know that there is still some good in you. There's no good in us that is capable or of earning or deserving our salvation in any way. We bring nothing to the table to earn our merit before God. Ephesians chapter two tells us that, there, that we're in fact dead in our sins apart from Christ. There's no slightly dead. There's no like almost dead. Well, kind of dead. I don't know. Like, no, like dead is dead. And as such, we are 100% deserving of God's wrath. This is... The, And as such, we are 100% unable to do anything to save ourselves from God's wrath. 
kind of leaves us in a hopeless state, does it not? But that's where scripture comes in with those, those kind of greatest buts in the Bible. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And he's bearing witness to who? To Christ. It's pointing us to Christ over and over and over again. The entire Bible is pointing us to one unfolding story of Christ. and saying that it's nothing but the blood of Jesus can save us from the wrath that we deserve. From Genesis to Revelation is one unfolding story that is telling us this over and over again, that our only hope is found in Christ. That's it. So when we, evangelistically speaking, what's the application here? We have one responsibility. We have one responsibility, if we are believers, to point people to Jesus and to keep pointing people to Jesus. We have one drum, one message that we proclaim. It is Christ and him crucified. More on that next week. But number three, God, the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we have a few roles here. Starting with how the Holy Spirit empowers the person who is, in sharing, who is sharing the gospel. Verse five, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul's saying, when we came to you, we weren't doing this in our own power. I wasn't coming with my wisdom. I wasn't coming with my intellect. I wasn't coming with my gifting. No, I'm coming with the power of the Holy Spirit and that's it. That's what we need to remember as a confidence building to us that it is the Spirit who gives us the strength to speak, the words to say, and the ability to say them. Now, there are some of you out here I know who, who it just comes natural for you to, to have conversation with others. It just, there are people who just are naturally gifted in conversation, like folks who will, will thrive off being around people, um, engaging in that conversation, um, who will literally start a conversation with anybody at any time in any place, wherever you are, whether you know them or not. That is not me. Not me. My dad is that person. Derek Burt, wherever he's at, is, is that person. His dad is that person. I am not that person. To this day, where, where, if I'm with my parents, they, maybe they're here visiting or, or we're with them somewhere, we'll go, we'll be in a grocery line or we'll go out to dinner. Um, and in my head, I'm, I'm just confessing here. I have like this prayer of confession that's going on, a prayer that's going on of like, Lord, please do not let my dad talk to anybody. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want my life story being told to the waiter and the waitress and the table across the way. Uh, oh, we're from Kentucky. And I, where are you? Do you know where Henderson is? And, and, I, and I'm like, no, dad, they don't. And, and, but that's my dad. I love my dad. It comes naturally to him. And I'm continually amazed in those conversations where I'm just like really praying for him not to have that conversation where... They actually respond and they just keep talking. And like, it's like he's made a friend. And I'm like, really? And then even when they're not interested, he just keeps talking anyway. He doesn't care. <laughs> I'm not that person. It's not where I'm at. I would like to be. I'm not. Some of you are, but a lot of us are not. So whether we're introverts or extroverts or combination of both, None of us share the gospel in our own power. None of us. 
Our personality type is not a, a, an excuse for keeping us in or out of evangelism. It's the spirit who empowers us with the ability to communicate the gospel, which means as we look to share the gospel, we need to be praying for the spirit to give us the power to do so. We can't do this on our own. And then when that leads to another role of the spirit. It's the spirit who illuminates the person hearing the gospel by convicting them of their sin and enabling them to receive the gospel with joy. It's the spirit who does this. Look at verse five again. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you became imitators of us at verse six and, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. A reminder, it's not our words that convict. We're not like tickling ears here and getting them to convict, hearts convicted. It's the work of the Spirit. No one comes to saving faith because of, we're an eloquent speaker. No one's coming to faith because, man, that was a really good presentation and that PowerPoint was awesome. I think the PowerPoint put it over the top and that's the reason I'm a believer today. God can use anything, but it's clearly the spirit working through those things that, that brings it about. At the same time, that means even when we walk away saying, oh man, I think I just totally screwed that up. I think that they are now dumber for having listened to everything that I have just said. Uh, I think that I've made the situation worse. Uh, anybody been there besides me? Like, help me here. Like, that, in that situation, we need to be reminded that a great number of people have come to faith in Christ through some pretty poor gospel presentations. And I'm betting that includes a number of us. Like I, I hear young pastors will sometimes say, and I probably have said this at some point in my life too, and they'll, they'll sit and they'll be talking about, how did you come, I'll say, how did you come to faith in Christ? And they're like, well, you know, I was in a church that didn't really teach the gospel, believe the gospel. I'm like, oh, that's sad. Um, I, you know, I don't, maybe it wasn't being taught clearly, whatever those type of things. And then I'm asking, so, but when did you come to faith in Christ? They're like, oh, when I was in church growing up. So in that same church that didn't believe the gospel, didn't preach the gospel, you came to faith in Christ. They're like, yeah. All right. So there's something being said that was truthful and the spirit of God was using that to bring you to saving faith in Christ. And so it, we don't have to have these great formal presentations that have every answer to every question. We need to be faithful to preach the gospel. I mean, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, he, he was saved by walking into a church service where the pastor wasn't there a guy stepped up, read from the scriptures, and God saved him. Just said, pointed to Jesus and beating the same drum, you need to, and God saved him. We share the gospel, and we're called to share the gospel. But as we're doing so, we're praying for the spirit to convict of sin. And we're causing, praying for the Spirit to bring people to receive the gospel with joy. Because we can't make that happen. So God's role in evangelism is that God is 100% sovereign over evangelism. 100% sovereign over salvation. 
God the Father chooses, God the Son saves, God the Holy Spirit empowers the one sharing to, to share, brings conviction and the ability to, to receive the gospel with joy. And all of that, if you're thinking and processing, naturally brings about the question of like, okay, what's my responsibility here? If God's got it covered, then what's he needing me for? Because he has designed within our roles to fill a very essential and important task. How many of you uh, like music? I'm sure every one of us in this room like different forms of music. I'm not a big symphony guy, but every now and then, it's like I, I appreciate it. And what I really appreciate about it is how all the different instruments are going together to blend to make one type of song. Like you get a soundtrack and that, those moments, everything's coming together. Everybody's playing their role and doing their part in that process. And obviously there, there's flaws in that illustration when it comes to this because God's in control of it all. But he's created for us to have a very essential and specific role. So what is the human role in evangelism? Think about it. What's Paul's role in evangelizing the people of Thessalonica? He shared the gospel with them. He was the mouthpiece that God used to share the gospel. Verse five, again, because our gospel came to you. And how did the gospel come to them? Paul brought it to them in word. He's proclaiming, so it's God's word, but it's, being, it's coming through Paul. He's the one sharing it. He's the one proclaiming it to them. So what's the human role in evangelism? We're responsible to share the gospel. Not to talk people into it, but to share the gospel. Now we can plead with them, persuade, come. We want you to come to faith in Christ. We need to do that. But we cannot soften their hearts. Only God can do that. We're responsible to share the gospel. So considering everything we just looked at, at with God's role in evangelism, what of this did Paul do in his own power? None of it. None of it. He did it all through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is the one being used to tell the people of Thessalonica the good news of the gospel. He is the one sharing, which is absolutely essential. Can't say that enough. It goes back to Romans 10. We talk about it all the time. Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without, or how will they call him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? The answer is they can't and they won't. They have to be able to hear. This is how God has designed for the gospel to go forth. But now... Is that the extent of the human responsibility of evangelism? No. Paul and Silas are not the only ones in this story. Who else is there? The Thessalonians. And what's their responsibility in this? To receive the gospel. To welcome it with joy. They are 100% responsible to receive the gospel with joy. Second part of verse 6. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Meaning the other human responsibility in evangelism is to receive and to welcome the gospel with joy. And how are we able to receive it? Only by the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and enabling our hearts to believe. See how it's working? You've got God's roles and human roles and they're just kind of doing this number. And that's where we can't try to have all the answers and figure everything out. We're seeing that God, the Bible has both clearly throughout scripture. And that means we have to trust both are both equally true. But we're not done yet. 
What else do we see from the Thessalonians after they received the gospel? Verse 6 and 7, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the text goes on to tell us that the gospel spread from them, went on and spread further. So upon receiving the gospel, what did the Thessalonians do? They began to share the gospel with others. Why? Because the gospel came to them while it was on its way to someone else. We are not the stopping point of the gospel. Throughout all of history, the gospel came to you because it was on its way and is on its way to someone else. We cannot forget this. It's not like, okay, I've received it, now I'm gonna go live my private life somewhere else. Is we have now received this gospel and now we are responsible for sharing this gospel. And it's not coming from just a, oh man, I gotta do this? Like, really? No, it's, I get to do this? I get to be a part of telling people how they can be reconciled to God through Christ? Yes! Like, yes! So when we look back in those opening charges that we saw in Acts 17, it said that when they, when they were there, one of the charges was, it, it was turning the world upside down. Can't have that. So I think about that charge, and I think about myself, and I think about us. Can that be said of us? Has the gospel turned our world upside down? See, we all have different personalities and different giftings, and praise God for that. But if we're in Christ, we have received the gospel exclusively by the grace of God. And now the Lord intends for us to be the vessel to share it with someone else. This isn't, again, this isn't a private matter. Our faith is to be lived out and proclaimed in the public arena, no matter the cost. And that cost will continue to grow higher. And what understanding the roles of evangelism is intended to do is to help us to, to stay in our lane, if you will, to know our role and to, to do so with humility and with confidence. So this is what I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible for convicting of sin. I'm not responsible for saving. I'm responsible for sharing and praying for God to save. That's what I'm, I'm responsible to share, to pray. That's it. God does the rest. So we believe and then we're to share. Trust in God to save. And then when we're tempted, and we will be, when we're tempted to step out of our lane, maybe, maybe soften the message because we really want somebody to come to faith in Christ and we kind of, eh, I'm gonna leave out the sin part. I'm gonna leave out the repentance part. I'm gonna just believe in Jesus and your life's gonna be great. That's not the gospel. It's the furthest thing from the gospel. When we're tempted to kind of get out of our lane, then we have the little subtle voice in our head coming from an AT&T commercial. Stay in your lane, bro. Like, just stay in your lane. Keep doing what God has called you to do. Stay with your role. So when Paul goes to prison, what's he do? He proclaims the gospel. I love Paul's cry. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that means somebody comes along and they said, okay, we're gonna lock you up. He says, okay, I'm gonna share Christ in the, in the prison. He said, no, now we're gonna kill you. Okay, great, I get to be with Christ. 
Okay, everywhere Paul went, anything he did, it was like, okay, now I'm going to bring glory to God. I'm going to share the gospel. Man, I want to be like that. I'm not saying it's going to just come overnight, but how do we do that with understanding that God saves and we're the one who share and we get to be a part of the wonder of it all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus and your plan to reconcile and redeem sinners such as us to yourself. And for those gathered with us today who have never believed, we ask for, for your spirit to convict of sin and bring genuine repentance and joyful, faith-filled belief. And for those who have, let us be faithful to fulfill the role you have called us in in this evangelistic process. Let us be faithful in sharing the gospel and let us trust in you to save. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the gospel together.